because, well, just because that's what happened. So a brief introduction as we look at kind of picking up from last time. So last time we talked about the depravity of the human condition without God. Um, we looked at the Columbine massacres and the general hopelessness of men whom we would consider great philosophers, whom the world considers great philosophers like Nietzsche and Tolstoy, and just the, the despair and bleakness they had with looking at life and, and kind of coming to the conclusion that it's meaningless, it doesn't matter. And you're still on time reading, you're fine. And uh, I asked the question, what, what, do we have to, to, what do we have to offer to go against all of that? Because men like Nietzsche and Tolstoy were not, were not just your average run-of-the-mill guy. Like they, were, they were smart. They took a lot of time and thought things through and figured some things out that maybe, maybe even better than we do. Maybe they had some things figured out better than we do. But they ultimately came to a place where it was like, okay, it's not worth it. That's basically where, where they came out at. Um, and, and, you know, that has its nuances and things like that. But I asked the question, so what do we have to set against that? What, uh, Nietzsche asked the question, what light are we going to have to guide us as we lose our idea of who God is? Because that's really, that really is our guiding light. That's our star. That's what we look at to, uh, to orient ourselves in the world. So coming back to Genesis 6, and I'll read verses 5 through 9 for you again. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have, cre whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. So we have this phrase here, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Three things that we notice about Noah. He was a just man, perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. And I asked, I, I really left off with a question last time. What does it really mean to walk with God? Because I would like to know. And I'm guessing you do too. And you think about who Noah was as God looked at the earth and sees out of everybody that was there, the millions of people, billions of people, whatever the earth's population was at that time, God sees one man as being, we could say, worthy of, uh, of saving or worthy of at least escaping the destruction along with the rest. So what exactly was it about Noah that set him so different or that set him apart so much from the rest of creation that God thought, okay, this guy has something here that is worth keeping. Now, I also told you last time that our hope lies in walking with God. That's what matters. That is what we have to set against the, the difficulties of the world. That's what we have to set against the tragedies of the world. But, like, what does that actually look like? What does it really, really mean to walk with God. And as I was thinking about that leading up to our class a couple of weeks ago, it's like, okay, well, okay, so if I would ask you the question, what does it mean to walk with God? 
we could like fill up the chalkboard, the whiteboard, with a list of things that you could do to walk with God, right? Because that's how we tend to think. We like we like step-by-step -step programs to teach us how to do something. But God isn't a step-by-step -step God, is he? How do you how do you because just we all know that just because we do the right things doesn't mean that our hearts are moving in the right direction. Right? But we still want to do the right things. And so somehow we recognize that walking with God means doing certain things, but it also means a lot more than that. It also means that my heart is in step with what I'm doing on the outside. And so I could give you a list of things to do, and you could, you know, for those of you that are, are motivated by goals, you could make the list and write it down and set yourself a step-by-step -step process. Every week you're going to work on this, you're going to work on this, and, and maybe you'd get somewhere. I could set out a list of goals for you, and those of you that are oversensitive, oversensitive, not oversensitive, but are sensitive and already feel a little overwhelmed, like I can just, you know, take more bricks and just set them on the shoulder, set them on your shoulders and add to the load that you're already carrying, trying to keep above water so that doesn't work so then how do we define what it means to walk with God is it really true that our relationship with God is our only hope and if it is what is it about that relationship that's so important that it saved Noah from destruction now as my mind was as I was thinking through this I, my mind was drawn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm sure this is familiar to most of you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. It's a very familiar passage. We know, but we know it by heart. But what exactly does it mean? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. How many of you, how many, for how many of you this verse is familiar? You know it. What does it mean? Like, what does that actually look like when you live it out? Where else in Scripture do you see these words? Can you think of anywhere else that this phrase or something very close to this phrase is used, or at least who might have said it? Jesus. There it is. Where? It's in Matthew somewhere, right? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, said by whom? Jesus? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go to Matthew. Thank you. You're, you're good. Because I didn't even know it was in Matthew. I had to Google it. But Jesus said it to him. Well, okay, maybe I'll give you the setting first. This is, by the way, this is called the Shema in Hebrew, which Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel. And, uh,. Jesus had a, had a guy come to him. I believe it was a lawyer. Actually, I'll just I'll give you the setting here really, really quickly. Uh, you don't have to turn there because I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But I just wanted to... I think it's worth noting that Jesus emphasized this as well. So in Matthew 22, verse 20, 34. When the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So there's a slight difference here, and I think it's worth noting just a bit. So Deuteronomy says, heart, soul, and might. Jesus said, heart, soul, and mind. Now, the problem with the New Testament that we have currently is that our original is in Greek. And yet we know that when Jesus spoke, it was not in Greek. It was probably in Aramaic, or this may have been in some form of Hebrew as well. And so when you, when you look at the Greek New Testament, you realize, we have to realize that we're reading a translation of what Jesus said, because Matthew was writing to an audience that he was giving out his, his story in Greek. And so he has to think, okay, Jesus said this in Hebrew. How does that translate into Greek? That's what we're going to write down. And so it's hard to get the original thoughts sometimes in, in, uh, in the New Testament. But I think it's worth noting, worth noting the difference here. Love the Lord your God. This is from Deuteronomy again. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, if you look at other translations, they might say something like resources for might. Or it might say something like with all of your power, or with, all the, with all that is within your power. In other words, uh, it's not just an... It's not just an inward thing, it's an actual what you have, you're throwing into your love for God. Like everything you have, you are loving God with that. So that's what Deuteronomy is probably referring to. But Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Now I don't, I don't have my, my Hebrew New Testament, so I don't, I don't have the exact Hebrew words for you. But the word mind and Okay, I just lost it. I better not go there. Anyway, but what does it mean to love the Lord God with a, love the Lord your God with all your mind? Well, the Hebrew word for mind is is that's used here is similar to the word that is given for knowledge. So what you could say what Jesus is saying is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your knowledge. Or we could say as well as you know, or as much as you know. Which is interesting because if you go back into the Old Testament and you look at the word conscience, we talked about that already. Conscience means with knowledge. And another way we can take Jesus' uh, quote here in Matthew 22 is that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our conscience. Now, more on that probably later. But... Uh, Jesus, so, so we have it in Deuteronomy. Jesus affirms that or confirms it in the New Testament that, yes, this is what it means. This is the greatest of the commandments. This is what, if you miss everything else, know that it falls under the category of you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind or with all your strength. So that's one place. But what does this actually look like? Like how many of you would be willing to say, yes, I think, I think I'm doing that? None. Okay, I'm not willing to raise my hand to that. We would probably all say that, okay, yeah, that's what we want to do. But when it actually comes to living it out, when it actually comes to living it out, it's a lot harder. Now, I'm not sure exactly why we would say it's a lot harder. We could say it's a lot harder because we, we know what we should do, but we don't do it. 
we could say that, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good, but I'm just not willing to say that I'm attaining that, so I'm not going to, so yeah, I think I've got that under control. Or maybe we think that it's something that's, it's a goal that's out there, but it's unattainable, but, but yet this is what God said, and so we know it's what he expects, but we can't actually, like, it's really hard for us to actually live that way. But what does it look like? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a visual person. I like to have pictures in my mind to go with whatever somebody is saying. If I can't visualize it, I have a hard time understanding it. And so when somebody tells me that God is um, omnipotent, that means nothing for me. Like, I'm sorry, that, that word just holds no glamour for me whatsoever. Now, if you want to tell me that God is like the sun, then I understand. Does that make sense? Because I can visualize the sun. The sun gives me light, the sun gives light, the sun gives warmth. It's like all of those things, okay, I can, okay, that, okay, that's what it means that God looks like the sun. But the word omnipotent, I have a hard time with that one. So how do we visualize loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our strength? There's another place in scripture where these exact same words are used, actually. And they're even used when describing somebody else, which I find ever so convenient. So, to answer the question of what would a life like this actually look like, scripture has given us a person about whom that was said. Second Kings 23, 25. And like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, Neither after him arose there any like him. How would you like that on your tombstone? It's a pretty amazing description of a person. Do you have any idea who that might have been? Take a guess. Hezekiah? That's really close, actually, no. So when you think of a king, you would think of maybe, okay, maybe David, maybe. But somebody else? Yeah. We don't really know the kings of Israel all that well, or the kings of Judah. These words were written about King Josiah, the last righteous king of Israel. And he lived his life in such a way that it was said of him that he loved or that he turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. So tonight, we are going to start looking at the life of Josiah, jumping all the way from Genesis Second Chronicles 34. But uh, I'm really happy that we have this, this, um, this example of someone who lived like this. Now, I'm not saying that Hezekiah was perfect. And I'm not going through this to give you a list of things to do so that you can walk with God. That's not my point. My point is, or the, the purpose of looking at the life of Josiah, is so that we can see, okay, what did he do that worked? that actually, you know, how was his life lived in such a way that this could be said of him, and then how does that actually apply into our lives, and, and maybe we can learn some things from that. So, King Josiah, 2 Chronicles 34, that is where we'll be for most of the rest of the evening, if you wish to be right there. And I was trying to figure out what parts of the story I could cut out, and I finally decided that if we just start going along, finish it next week. Because there's a lot here. 
All right, a model for walking with God. Give you the context here before we before we go into the reading. King Josiah is a grandson of Manasseh. What can you tell me about King Manasseh? Heard of him? Isn't he terribly wicked or something? Mm-hmm. Is Hezekiah's son? Yes, yes. Which is another interesting tidbit. <coughs> yes, thank you, Judith. That's another really interesting tidbit. So Hezekiah is told that he gets 15 more years to live, right? And then he dies, and his son Manasseh becomes king at the age of 12, and is the worst king that the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. He was more wicked than anybody else that came before or after him, I believe it is said of him. He ruled for 55 years. He was he was he was a real bugger. He sacrificed his children to Moloch in the Valley of Hinnom. He put idols directly inside the temple of God and in the temple court. He used wizards and enchantments and was finally he was so wicked. Let me see if I can uh, actually see this little this description of him here. Ah, yes, Second Chronicles 33, 9. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. So he goes to Babylon, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how long he was there, before he repented. Manasseh actually is probably one of the people that you will meet when you go to heaven someday. Or is it hard as it is to believe? He did repent in the last days of his life. Um, he was released. He went back to Jerusalem and finished out his reign in Jerusalem trying to do what was right. Trying to undo some of the damage that he had done during the main part of his rule. But it was obviously too late. So Manasseh slept with his father's and they buried him in his own house. He was so wicked, by the way, that he was the, I believe he was one of the only kings of Judah not to be buried in the tomb of the kings. They buried him in his own house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. Ammon was two and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh his father, for Ammon sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh his father had made, and served them, and humbled not himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more, and his, and his servants conspired against him and slew him in his own house. But the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his king, his son king in his stead. Interesting tidbit here. Manasseh is uh, 67 when he dies. And his 20, let me look here, give me a second, 22-year-old son begins to reign. So Ammon was born when Manasseh was like 45, he had an older father at the time. Ammon reigned for two years, died at the age of 24, and left the kingdom to his eight-year-old son. Got that? So Josiah's father was 16 when he was born. You think that's bad? This isn't funny. Actually, it is really funny. Um, you think that's bad when the Israelites moved from Canaan to Goshen with Jacob? Benjamin has 10 sons that are listed, and Benjamin's like 25, or something like that. 
So now you can now you understand how the children of Israel got from like 75 people when they came into the land of Canaan a whole bunch some generations later after they left. It's unbelievable. Just some impressive people. I'll say that. All right. So that's uh, that's King Josiah's upbringing, or that's that's sort of what he falls into. Um, he becomes king of a land at the age of eight. Now I'm I'm guessing that he was a figurehead, a puppet king for a while, while you know regents and governors and whoever else kind of made the business of the kingdom happen. But looking at this guy, you probably wouldn't give him much of a chance. Y'all know what happens to rich kids, or to kids who grow up rich and undisciplined and spoiled, don't you? They're just the kind of people you like to be around when you're like 18 and 19 and 20, or even older. This is about uh, 600 years before the birth of Christ, so that places us uh, right towards the end of the southern kingdom of Judah. What kind of a king would you expect Josiah to be? Your father is remembered as being so wicked that his servants finally had enough and killed him. You become king at age eight. I'm not sure that was a comforting thing for Josiah because they just killed your dad. How do you know they're not going to come for you next? And yet, this is what is said of King Josiah, reading in 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now that phrase, declined neither to the right hand nor to the left, is used uh, for a few other kings. Hezekiah was one of them. Um, there's about two other kings in Judah that get something similar said about them. Like, you know, that he walked in the, in, in the ways of the Lord as, as did David his father or something like that. But this bit here, declined neither to the right hand nor to the left, I think is exclusive only to Josiah. So what does that mean? It says he does right in the sight of the Lord. He walks in the ways of David his father and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Okay. What does it mean that you decline neither to the right hand nor to the left? Okay. So that brings us to the question then. What is sin? Now, I realize that's a complicated question. But I think we have to understand what sin is in order to understand what it means to decline neither to the right hand nor to the left. The word picture for sin in the Old Testament is different than it is in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word for sin basically means something like this, to leave the path. Psalm 23 says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. That's their view of what it means to be saved. You're, you're walking along, and you're walking in the paths of righteousness. And, uh, and when you sin, you have left the path, and you're off somewhere else now. So when he says, decline neither to the right hand nor to the left, the, the writer here is thinking, okay, the right way is straight. Josiah didn't go this way. He didn't go this way. He went straight on. Now, sorry, I have to kind of think about where all I want to go with this, because there's so much information here. Actually, we'll go to the New Testament then. The New Testament word for sin is an archery term that means to miss the mark. So you pull back the bow, you aim, you fire, and you miss. That's the same word that's used for sin. You missed the mark. So 
let's let's think about bow hunting for a second. What all goes through your mind when you go to shoot an arrow? What's the process? First off, you have to decide what? You have to decide what you're gonna shoot at, right? You have to identify a target. And you have to decide that that target is worth me going to the bother of you know, fitting an arrow, pulling back the string, and releasing it. When it says that, Je that Josiah declined neither to the right hand nor to the left, it means that he was going straight. So in order to be going straight, you have to actually be looking at something that you want to get to. Does that make sense? Have you ever noticed that when you set a goal for yourself, it's a lot easier to decide what you're going to do? Why is that? Somehow, we actually get somewhere when we look at where we want to go and start walking toward it instead of just aimlessly walking our way through life. Like Bradley could say, okay, I'm gonna go get a nursing degree and then walk into college. And they're like, what are you here for? Well, I don't know, let me see your list of classes here. And he just takes whatever he feels like. It's like, no. It's like you have the goal ahead of you. I want my nursing degree. And so this, this, and this, and this all fall into that category. And that's what I'm going to take because I'm aiming at something. I'm, put, I'm setting my sights on something and that's where I'm going and everything else that I'm doing falls into that, falls under that umbrella of, of importance. And we live our entire lives like that, I suppose. But uh, for King Josiah, I think this is, is significant because the picture that is given is that somewhere along the line, Josiah says, I'm going to follow God. I don't know how he came to that point. I don't know what influences he, he had in his life to get him to that point. But somewhere he decided that I'm going to follow God. I'm going to go in that direction toward him. And everything else that I do is going to line up with that objective. Now, how in the world do you start doing something like that? How do you really begin to follow God? It's one thing to say that, okay, I want to. I want to walk with God like Noah did. But when it really comes down to it, how does that actually change what I do today and right now? That's where, at least if you're me, it's like, okay, what does this look like? What do I do next? How does that desire translate into how I'm acting right now? I, yeah, it would be interesting to know what brought Josiah to this place because he was a young boy. He had every good reason to be just an abhorrent and lousy person but he doesn't he took the responsibility to do what he could he set his aim high and as a result gets his spot in the book of second chronicles just one other quick note on Josiah here I think this is a good example of a person that did not allow their past to determine where they went in the future. Now, I'm not one that tells that I'm not one to tell somebody that they should forget their past. I think that's stupid. I think that's impossible. I, I think it's just. I don't think that works. We can't change the things that have happened from the time we were born until now. But we do have some control over today. That's one of the lessons of Josiah. So how does he do this? How does he accomplish, how does he accomplish walking with God? Let's read in 2 Chronicles 34 again. 
For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. Okay, so this is, he was 16 when this happened. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, and the groves, and the carved images, and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence, and the images that were on high above them he cut down, and the groves, and the carved images, and the molten images he break in pieces, and made the dust of them, and made dust of them, and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burned the bones of the priests upon their altars, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali, <coughs> excuse me, with their maddocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. What do you do if you don't know what to do? Now that might sound like a stupid question. But really, if you just if you set out your mind, how like for King Josiah here, it says he started doing this in the eighth year of his reign, and this kind of goes through. Um, he, he's in the eighth year of his reign. He sets his heart to follow God. So he's sixteen. Around the age of twenty, four years later, whatever has happened in the past four years, I don't know. But he decides that we're going to get rid of the idol worship in our land, and they spend the next several years going, basically going through the temple. Are going not going through the temple, but going through Jerusalem, going through the land of Israel, cutting down the groves, getting rid of all the idol worship, all the Baal worship that they could. So how did Josiah know how to do this? Because it's likely at this point in his life he has never seen a scroll copy of the Word of God. And we know this because of what happens next. So what do we do when we don't know what else to do? What should I do if I don't know exactly where I should be going right now? Okay, so we talk about conscience. I don't know why all you have, why, I don't know all the reasons why God gave us a conscience. And I don't know what all our conscience is supposed to tell us. But have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question, what am I doing or what did I do today? that I know is taking me in a direction I don't want to go. And like the answer just comes. Have you ever noticed that your conscience is really good at telling you what not to do? And actually, for me, that's probably more what it does than anything else. Is like, if you just stop, you, you know, you're, you're reaching for the cookie in your conscience, like, no, what do you do? You get the cookie, right? But it's not like your conscience, well, okay, it's complicated, I recognize that. But I do find it interesting that if you really want to figure out what's hurting you, you usually don't have to think very long about it before these answers just start popping up in your mind, right? Okay, Nate, you spent 30 minutes on YouTube watching disc golf today. You know, that's probably not really taking you the direction you want to get. That never happens, though, yeah. I'm a liar, sorry. <laughs> But seriously, if you want to weed out the things in your life that are, that are pulling you off the path, your conscience will generally tell you. You do stupid stuff, and you knew it was stupid before you did it, and you knew that after you did it, your conscience would bother you, and you did it anyway. At least if you're a human being like me, that's... 
far too often how life is. What does Josiah do when he doesn't know what else to do? He gets rid of the things in his life that he knows aren't helping. Does that make sense? This is a guy, by the way, your age. He was around 20 years old when this stuff was happening. He wasn't that old. You people, you people, not just you people, my people, myself included, I'm only 32, we don't really have life figured out. Some of you know where you want to go, so if you're in nursing school, okay, so you're working towards a goal. Well, what about after that? You don't know what you're going to be doing yet. It's still kind of open-ended. It's like somebody said one time, like, you go, you go for your graduate degree or something like that, and you work and you work and you work and you finally finish finals. And there's this euphoric, lovely, wonderful feeling. You get to graduation, you walk off the stage, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, what now? Yeah, really, what now? Most of us don't have our lives planned out to the, to the T. But I think all of us probably have the ability to get rid of the things that we know aren't pushing us in the right direction. Because that's where Josiah started. It's like, how was he supposed to know what worship of God looked like? And yet he knew what it didn't look like. And he started working on those things. He begins to fix the things in his nation that he knows are wrong. So he tears down the idols. He doesn't just tear down the idols. He also desecrates the places of Baal worship, which I find interesting. Notice that he took the bones of the dead priests and crushed them and threw them on the altars and burned them, things like that. All of that was stuff to... All of that was done to destroy the ability of someone else to come back and begin to sacrifice to Baal at that point again. Because if they knew that the priest's the priest bones had been, had been desecrated on that altar, they wouldn't use it anymore. So there's a finality there. It's like he's going, we're going to this place, we're going to break down the altar, we're not going to worship here again, and we're going to make sure that nobody else does either. He was leaving that in the past now. <coughs> He takes care of everything in the land and returns to Jerusalem. All right, here we go. Second Chronicles 34. Let me see if I can find exactly. Well, I'll begin reading in verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, so he's 24 years old now. 26, I'm sorry. When he had purged the land in the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah... And Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So notice, all of this idol worship stuff that was getting taken down was done before they probably even had started doing regular sacrifices in the temple yet. So he goes and they decide, okay, now we're going to work on the house of God. When they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites had kept, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and all the, all the remnant of Israel and all Judah and Benjamin and they returned to Jerusalem and they put it in the hand of the workmen that had oversight of the house of the Lord <clears throat> they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house so they're starting to build back or to build up or to repair the temple of Jerusalem again verse 14 and when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord Hilkiah the priest found a book of the Lord given by Moses. 
And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. Imagine being 26 years old. You've spent the last 10 years of your life trying to follow God, and for the first time, you hear the words of a book of the Old Testament. The word of God was hidden. The first over, actually. Hang on, not over. How long did Hezekiah live? 38. 39. So it's about halfway through his reign before he ever heard a copy of the word of God being read to him. Now, there's a number of different theories, I suppose, as to what had happened, but the, the house of, or the temple, had been in such disrepair for such a long time that it was likely that one of the that one of the priests had hidden a copy of the of the um, book of Deuteronomy, likely enough actually, hidden a copy of the book of Deuteronomy in the treasury room to keep it from being destroyed. So it was a theory. I don't know if that's exactly what happened or not, but remember that at least once between the reign of Hezekiah and now, the Babylonians had come and plundered Jerusalem. And so the idea is that when the priests were going in back and forth into the treasury room, which is the place where they would have kept the money that they would have been using to repair the temple throughout the reign of Hezekiah, that somewhere along the line, the, pri the priest finds a scroll, realizes what he has, and decides that we'd better tell the king about this. You would think that this would be a wonderful day for the kingdom of Josiah, finally getting to hear the word of God. And Shaphan read it before the king, and this was the response. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Esaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Jerusalem, or in Israel, and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. Now, was Hezekiah in sin at this point? No. Was he going in a good direction? Yes. Was he doing everything right? As far as he knew. And suddenly he gets a copy of the word of God and realizes that because of the sins of the people that have come before him, Jerusalem is headed for destruction. How would that make you feel? Like, we try for a few days to accomplish something, or we try for a few weeks to accomplish something. Imagine trying for years to get your nation back in, uh, in order before God. You're finally getting somewhere. You're finally at the point where you're working on the temple, trying to get the... The, uh, the sacrificial system back up and running again. And in the middle of all that, you find out that God is so upset with you because of what the people that have come before you have done, that Jerusalem and Judea and everything that you have worked on thus far is going to be destroyed in judgment. 
What would you do? Have you ever worked really hard for something and then it flops? And then you decide you're never going to do that again because it wasn't worth it. That's a case for nihilism. And that's in some ways, that's where the writer of, well, it seems anyway, that's where the writer of Ecclesiastes comes out at in like the first five chapters of the book. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. That's where Nietzsche came out. Josiah discovers that his best effort might not be good enough. Okay. Sorry, I gotta behind myself here. The second thing he did was build his relationship with God. But in the middle of that building the relationship with God, Josiah discovers that things could still go haywire. So here's the lesson, I suppose, from that, is that if you aim high, there are things that might stand in your way through no fault of your own that you still have to conquer in order to keep moving forward. Does that make sense? Because when you set out to... When you set out to do better than the people did that came before you. And some of you come from good homes, and some of you come from homes that were difficult. That doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, I get that. I'm not trying to downplay that, because, yeah, lousy home life is in, certainly in my family tree as well. And it matters, and yet, we all have things that our parents missed that we, really, we probably know are there, that are weaknesses of ours, that we know that we're going to have to overcome in order to keep, in order to be able to pass something better on to our children. That's where I find myself because I, I see things now in my own life, stuff that I've struggled with, and you think you can teach your children in a way that they won't struggle with that, and it doesn't work because they still grow up in the society like what we do. So sorry to disappoint you about that little fact. There's things that come up in our lives that we have no control over that we need to work through if we want to keep going. So what does Isaiah do? Or what does uh, Josiah do? So they go to Huldah, the prophetess, and they talk to her about their problems, essentially, and then this is what she says in Second Chronicles 23. And she answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell ye the man that sent you to me. Thus saith the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah. <coughs> because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humbled thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and the inhabitants of the same. So they brought word to the king again. You remember the story of Hezekiah? God grants him 15 more years. Babylonians come for a visit. 
Hezekiah shows them the splendor of his kingdom and all his riches and things like that. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, Hezekiah, who are those guys? Hezekiah says, they're from Babylon. They came to congratulate me on my recovering from my illness. Isaiah says, uh, Hezekiah, what did you show them? And Hezekiah said, I showed them everything. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, everything that you showed them, the Babylonians will carry off and take to Babylon, and your sons will be eunuchs in the court of the king of Babylon. What was Hezekiah's response? He said, good is the word of the Lord. As long as it doesn't happen when I'm alive. That's right. You like if your parents took that approach? Like, you know, they just kind of royally screw up. You know how many children eunuchs had? None. Isaiah, or, Isaiah tells Hezekiah that basically your descendants are going to die out in the land of Babylon. Now, obviously not all of them. And Hezekiah has the audacity to say, good is the word of the Lord because it's not happening in my lifetime. I'll tell you, if you're looking only to the end of your lifetime, you're looking too short. That's not far enough ahead. What does Josiah do with this information? So God essentially tells Josiah that, yes, the curses are going to come on Jerusalem, but because of who you are, they're not going to come in your lifetime. How would you respond? Well, let's see how Josiah responds. This is immediately following the king finding out what God has, has said about Jerusalem. Verse 29. And the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Jerusalem, of Judah and Jerusalem. And I'll jump down to verse 31. So he gets everybody together. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that are written in this book. God just told him that the people that come after you are going to experience my destruction. And Josiah's response is to get the people together and make a covenant that we are going to serve the Lord. What's happening here? Well, for one, we could say that Josiah is leading his community toward God. But do you know what else is going on? Josiah knows that everything he's doing will someday be destroyed in judgment by God. God has told him as much. And Josiah says, essentially takes the attitude not while I'm alive is this going to happen. And if I can help anybody else that's coming after me, I'm going to do that. And he established the worship of God in Judah as much as he possibly could in his lifetime. It wasn't good enough for Josiah that he was going to be saved from destruction. He was going to make it as, as not as easy as possible. He wanted to give those that followed after him every opportunity they could have to walk with God and avoid the same destruction. So is this a, is he, so uh, Josiah does not take this and get out of jail free card. Unlike, unlike his great grandfather Hezekiah. So look at the progression. What did Josiah do? He got rid of the things that he knew weren't putting him in the right direction. He got rid of idol worship. He worked on his relationship with God. He began to build his connection with God. He kept going. Because you know as well as I do that you can set out to do something, 
but actually doing it and accomplishing it and staying consistent with it for years on end is a lot, dif is a lot more difficult than simply saying you're going to do something. He remained faithful through the storms and as a result was able to lead his community toward God. What happened as a result of that? Now, if you, we're not going to take the time to go on and read the rest of the story of Josiah because there's like two more chapters. One more chapter, I suppose. But the result was the greatest revival and return to God that Judah ever experienced as a nation. Josiah went on from making that covenant with God and they held a Passover and invited Israel to come join them at their Passover. Now, not everybody came, but it is recorded here in 2 Chronicles that there was no Passover like this all the way from the time of Samuel the prophet until now. They celebrated Passover in a way that nobody had, in a way that Israel had not done as a king or as a nation since the time of Samuel. And the people came back to God, even if it was only for a short time, 25 years after the death of, Judah, of Josiah. The nation of Judah ceased to exist. What he did lasted 25 years. That was it. He brought about revival knowing that the future generations were going to fall away and walk away from God. That verse again. He followed after God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might. <clears throat> I'm not saying you have to live like your life exactly like Josiah lived it, but I think what he did does give us a pattern of things that we can ourselves. I'm not giving you this as a list to follow, to be burdened by, but I think these are things that can point us in the right direction if we really do want to walk with God. Something else from Genesis chapter 6, and I'll close with this. King James Bible reads like this, <clears throat> but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's probably the most common way that we would understand the, the, uh, the translation of Genesis 6, verse 8. This is what the Greek Septuagint from my Orthodox Study Bible says. Noah found grace in the presence of the Lord God. Grace. Let's talk about grace for a minute. What's your definition of grace? What do you hear as a definition of grace? your pastor asks this over the pulpit or if somebody had to ask you what's the common the common answer given as to what grace is giving us something that we don't really deserve any others well you've heard the phrase unmerited favor that seems to be the common one that I hear anyway when this issue comes up of what is grace unmerited favor that's that's what we get from our Greek New Testaments. But the Hebrew word for grace means something different. Again, it's a word picture. And the word picture that's given of grace in the Hebrew Bible means to be within the camp. And that literally means that to experience grace is for God to take you and set you within his camp. To bring you within the walls of where God dwells. That's what it means. That's the picture that's given for the Hebrew word for grace. 
you look at Noah found grace in the presence of the Lord. Now, Genesis tells us that Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. Did he get grace with God because he was just and perfect in his generations and righteous? Where did the grace come first? Because I can give you a list. I can give you a list of things to do to walk with God, and you can add them to your to-do list and check them off and feel good about yourself and really be no closer to God at the end of the day. What does it mean to find grace in the presence of God? I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts on that. What can you do to earn your salvation? No takers? Why? Because I asked the wrong question, didn't I? So what did you do today to try to earn your salvation? Like, as I, as I watch myself and as I look at my life, I realize that I spend a lot of time looking for band-aids to cover up the fact that I don't feel secure. Like, <laughs> like we feel disconnected from God. And I, and I said that our conscience, our conscience generally tends to point out things that we're doing that we shouldn't. And it's easy to see that and to think, oh, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I didn't do what I should have there. And you beat yourself up for it. And you've got to try harder. You've got to do more. And we focus on doing. And we're not experiencing grace anymore. Now, I'm not trying to downplay works. But we do live in a culture that, if anything, has overemphasized works. I'm all about doing the right thing. But your works do not endear you to God any more than anybody else's. Do we really understand that there has never been a time that God has loved you less than he does right now? And there will never be a time that he loves you more than he does right now. Because his love does not depend on me. That's what grace is. Grace is God taking an undeserving person like me, picking me up and setting me within his camp. What can you do to earn that? That's a gift. That's grace. And when you look at Noah, we can, we can look at him and say, oh, he must have had all of his ducks in a row. Everything was, he, he did everything right. His conscience perfectly, he obeyed. Maybe he did, I don't know. But when it says that he found grace, it doesn't say he earned it. He walked in the presence of God and he discovered that grace was there. And I think if we want to walk with God, the first steps is going to come by accepting that nothing but his grace saves me and nothing but his grace keeps me. Because when we start to try to earn our salvation and earn our standing with God, we start looking to other things to fill the need that we have in our lives. But when we realize that there's nothing I can do, that Jesus is enough, that's assurance. That's grace. And that's it. Thank you for your attention tonight.
through that with me. I don't know yet where we're going for class next Thursday evening.